We are studying together the book of Romans so that we might come to an understanding of this book for our Christian growth. This is a book which tells us about the righteousness of God in all of his relationships. Righteousness might be defined as God's holiness revealed in his actions toward anything and everything and everyone outside of himself. The last time we talked about righteousness, we said that essentially righteousness means conformity to a standard. All of God's actions are conformed to the standard of who he is, his holiness. Thus, God cannot ever be unrighteous or unfair. God is always absolutely just in everything that he does because all of his actions conform to who he is. He is righteous. The clearest statement of the righteousness of God is perhaps in the gospel. And it is demonstrated at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I invite your attention to the key verses of Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed in its content. God was absolutely just in the death of his son. Because for our sake, his holy and innocent, his wonderful son became sin. Therefore, God put him to death. Because as he became sin, our Savior no longer conformed in that sense, to God. Therefore God poured upon Jesus, his beloved Son, wrath. He was just in the treatment of his beloved Son. The content of the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. God loved his Son, but when his Son became sin for us, God poured wrath upon his Son because of the sin. God was righteous. We also see the righteousness of God revealed in the results of the gospel. He goes on to say the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man, the just, shall live by faith. The one who believes this gospel of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ receives the righteousness of God because of that faith. The faith itself is not meritorious, it's not works, it doesn't do anything to commend the soul to God, except that the faith receives God's gift of righteousness. And so in the gospel we see the righteousness of God revealed and demonstrated and exposed and made available to all who will believe. We have said that the theme of Romans, at least as we're approaching it, is that God is at work in the world of humanity and history, demonstrating his righteousness through those who believe the gospel. God is at work in our world today. He is at work demonstrating his righteousness 
through those of us who have believed this gospel we just talked about. The world in which we live, and by the, the term world, we're not talking about the globe. We're talking about the, the system that is, has organized humanity in opposition to God. The world in which we are pilgrims, in which we are asked and, uh, to, to live out our lives, is a world that is not righteous. It is a world that is evil and wicked and opposed to God in every respect. But because of the response of faith in believers, God forgives the sin of believers and counts them as righteous in Christ. And so though we live in a world that is unrighteous, we are counted by God as being right with Him, righteous in His eyes. But what about the rest of humanity? What about those who have not believed? What is God's relationship to the world? I think it can be summarized in one word. If you have your outlines, I think that this will correspond to one of the blanks there. God's relationship to the world can be summarized in one word, and that is the word condemnation. The world is under the condemnation of God because of its sin. God's righteousness, on the one hand, is revealed in the salvation of those who believe. But on the other hand, God's righteousness is revealed in the condemnation of those who reject the light that is given to them. That's why he begins the section we're studying tonight, chapter 1, verse 18, with a statement regarding the wrath of God. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God. The wrath of God is itself the righteousness of God expressed toward sin. It is the expression of God's perfect justice toward that which is out of conformity with who he is. The section we're looking at this evening, beginning with this verse and going through chapter 3 and verse 20, is a section that is actually an indictment of the whole world of humanity, without any exception. In chapter 1, verse 18 through verse 32, we have the condemnation of the pagan. The condemnation of the pagan. The one who has no knowledge of the written revelation of God, either the gospel of Jesus Christ or the law of God. The apostle begins by giving us the reasons for their condemnation, and there are two reasons for the condemnation of those who are pagan. In the first place, they suppress the truth of God, and secondly, they reject the knowledge of God. Now notice this. They suppress the truth of God. He says God's wrath is revealed against men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What is the truth here? The truth in this instance refers to the universal, natural revelation of God that is available to all men. It is that truth that there is a supreme being 
who is worthy of worship and obedience. He says that which is known about God is evident within them. God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen. That is the truth. The truth here, that is the truth that God has revealed in his creation. Invisible attributes are made visible, and he names two of them, the eternal power of God and his divine nature. All men have that truth available to them because of the creation. It is not sufficient in itself to save a person, but it is sufficient to make a person responsible to God for the light that he has. Reasoning from the law of cause and effect, all men are able to come to the knowledge of this kind of truth, that there is a God who is worthy of devotion. But rather than accept and follow and seek after this kind of truth that is clearly demonstrated in creation, what do men do? They suppress this truth. They hold it down, that is. They repress it. And why do they do that? Why do men, though God's, something of God's person can be seen in the universe around them, turn from that and reject it and suppress it? Well, he says that they do this in unrighteousness, which means out of their own unrighteousness they do it. The point is they're trying to escape accountability for their moral actions. If there is indeed a supreme being, then man is held accountable for what he does in this world. Man would rather suppress the knowledge of God and not have to face the issue of accountability. The pagan is lost. He is under the condemnation of God because he suppresses the truth of God. But not only that, he rejects the knowledge of God. In verse 19, it says that he can know God. That which is known about God is evident within him and without him, outside of him. Within him in his conscience, outside of him in the creation around him. But man rejects that knowledge. He goes on through verse 23 to demonstrate this in what is seemingly an historical example. And the question is, what is Paul thinking of when he writes about these who, uh, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God? Who are these people? I think the best answer, at least to my satisfaction, is that he's talking about the civilization prior to the flood of Noah. Yet it is true of every pagan civilization. It is true of the Roman civilization. It is true of our civilization. But I think the Apostle has in mind that particular civilization that lived prior to the flood. They knew God, he says. Not in a saving way, mind you, but in an intellectual sense. They had to acknowledge that there was undeniable evidence of God. But did they then honor God? No. 
Man began to take steps away from God. He lists six of them here. He says they did not honor God, step number one. Step number two, they did not give thanks to God. Step number three, they became futile. The word there means non-productive, speculative. I think here we have uh, uh, an insinuation regarding the mythology that pagan people come up with. The damnable theory of evolution when applied to religion says that man somehow developed this idea of polytheism and mythologies and gods and systems of religion like that and eventually evolved monotheism, the belief in one God, which is found in Israel and now in Christianity and in Islam and so on. But the Bible teaches just the opposite, that man began with the knowledge of one God and then stepped away from that knowledge to speculations and futile thoughts and religious systems which man created, these mythologies of the various kinds of Greek and Roman gods uh, as well as the Hindu pantheon of millions of gods and so on. It is the result of man's speculation, turning from the God that may be known. The result of that, he says, step number four, uh, they became foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The word foolish here means stupid, undiscerning, not seeing. Step number five is that they then became fools. The word means moron, literally, dull. So that despite their claim of intellect and mental superiority, professing to be wise, he says, nonetheless, they became fools. Learnedness does not mean that one is wise. And the final step is that they exchanged God's glory for idols in the forms of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So the steps away from God. They knew God. They rejected the knowledge of God. They stepped away from Him and ended up worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. And the result of this is that they are without excuse. Now having given us the reasons for their condemnation, they knew God but suppressed the knowledge of God and rejected it. He now tells us the result of their condemnation. Three times in the rest of chapter 1, he says, God gave them over. That doesn't mean the same thing as saying God gave up on them. God doesn't give up. God doesn't grow weary. What is said here is an act of judgment on God's part. Pagans turned from the knowledge that they could have of God. Therefore, it says, God gave them over. He turned them over to something, to someone. What was it? Well, it was to themselves and to their sin. In other words, God allowed the sin of their hearts to produce its natural consequences. Some sinners pray, oh God, just leave me alone. Dear friend, that is the worst thing God can do to them. For when God gives one over, 
It is an expression of God's wrath. Now he says God gave them over in the first place to what seems to be a cultic kind of immorality. The lusts of their hearts, impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies, connected with their worship. You read about any system of idol worship and you will find exactly what Paul talks about here. It involves immorality of a gross sort. And then he says in verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions, here to perversion and a general sort of immorality. The result of which is that they receive in their persons the due penalty of their error. God is just giving them over to allow their passions and their sins to lead them on downward away from him. That's the way they want to go. God says, go. And he gives them over to it. And the result of it is that out of their very sin, out of their very perversion, comes a consequence. E.H. Gifford says, the sin against God's nature that is, refusing to accept who God is, entails as its penalty sin against one's own nature. Now why is that? Because we're created in the image of God. And therefore when we reject God, we reject ourselves. To sin against God's nature is to sin against our own nature. And he says, finally, verses 28 to 32, God gave them over to a depraved mind with all that that means. These people can no longer distinguish between right and wrong. It's a fearful text that we look at here in the condemnation of the pagan. And again, I say, I believe that the apostle is is really referring to that that generation, that civilization that existed in the world before the flood. But the same pattern is followed in every civilization that turns from the knowledge of God, including the Western civilization in our contemporary world. We are marching down the same path that Paul describes in this text. And it is evidence of the wrath of God. Men reject the knowledge of God, therefore God gives them over to the consequences of their own sin. Well, someone says, I'm sure glad I'm not a pagan. Takes care of me. I'm out of that scene. You know, that's not me at all. Well, the apostle has some words to say to those who might respond that way. Chapter 2. For here we have the condemnation of the moralist. Those who would say, I'm not like those immoral pagans. I'm religious, and I do good. I'm a pretty fine guy. I'm moral. And yet they excuse themselves from the guilt of their actions, and in fact are self-righteous. Not truly righteous, but self-righteous. He begins the whole chapter by saying these two are without excuse. God's judgment is upon the moralist who is self-righteous as much as it is upon the pagan 
in his gross immorality. God's judgment, he says, in the first place is according to works of man. God judges according to works. There can be no argument about this. The record is clear. Did you do this? Did you not do that? Notice it says in verse 6, Who will render to every man according to his deeds? And Paul's point here is that the moral man, though he feels self-righteous, actually does the very same things as the pagan. Oh, his sin may be more discreet. He may seem to be more civilized. He may hide his sin better. He may couch it with religion. He may be refined or educated. What he does may be acceptable to the majority of the people. In other words, what everybody else is doing it. Therefore, it must not be sin. Paul says, sin it is. And God will judge according to works. It is still sin to God. And God will condemn the moralist based upon his life. The truth of it. Therefore, God's judgment is also impartial. Verses 11 through 15. Whether one is a moral Gentile or a moral Jew, it really doesn't make much difference. God is impartial about that. The Jew is moral because of the knowledge of the law, but he's going to be judged by that law. The Gentile may be moral because of his conscience convicting him, but he will still be judged. Both the Jew and the Gentile who are moral sin against the light that God has given them and will be judged accordingly. Let's try to pick up some verses that talk about this. Verse 11, there is no partiality with God. All who have sinned without the law, who is that? The Gentile, will also perish without the law. Why? They've sinned. And all who've sinned under the law, who's that? The Jew, will be judged by the law. So God is impartial in his judgment. He doesn't look at the exterior. He doesn't look at the pedigree. He doesn't look at the the race or the nationality. God looks at the works. And he judges impartially. And in verse 16, he tells us that God's judgment is right. God's judgment is right. According to truth. He says there is a day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. God knows the moral man's secrets. The moral man says, nobody knows. I'm not like those people who are gross and open in their display of sin. I'm better than they are. Paul tells us here, God knows the secrets. God knows what the moral man will not admit even to himself. And his judgment will be according to truth. It will be a right judgment. The moral man is under the condemnation of God. Well, maybe the Jew sat back in his easy chair at this point and said, Well, that's all great, but I've got the law. And I am a Jew. 
I'm not a Gentile dog, and I'm certainly not a pagan. And so now the apostle wishes to address this group. He says, if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, and he goes on to lay out for us the privileges of the Jews. There are at least ten advantages that Jews have over Gentiles here in verses 17 through 20. The privileges of the Jew. But after telling the privileges of the Jew, he goes on to lay out the problem of the Jew. Verses 21 through 27. He says, despite the advantages which the Jew has had, he has failed to attain the righteousness of God. Why is that? Because instead of heeding the message of the law, the Jew sought to use it to establish his own self-righteousness. Instead of heeding the message of the law, which was intended to point out sin and to bring one to the mercy of God. The Jew used the law to establish a certain code of self-righteousness and lived in hypocrisy. For example, the Jew said, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but committed adultery. The Jew said, You shall not worship idols that robbed idols' temples, he says. You boast in the law, but you break the law, and you dishonor God. And he says in verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now he's talking to the Jew. And he lays the Jew out flat. The Jew has nowhere to stand. Advantages and privileges mean nothing if they aren't taken advantage of. Instead of using them the right way, the Jew used them the wrong way. I think there's a point of application here for us who call ourselves Christians. The advantages that we have the privileges and the advantages that belong to us as believers, if they're not used properly, only increase our condemnation. The true Jew, he says in verses 28 and 29, is not one anyway who is circumcised in his body, who has that outward mark of a covenant. He says the real Jew is one who is inwardly circumcised in his heart. That's the real Jew. As we come then to chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, the apostle seems to be here entering into a debate with some Jewish uh, rabbi. And he begins to debate with this imaginary rabbi with some responses that the rabbi might give to what Paul has said about the condemnation of the Jew. We don't have time to go into that except to point out in verse 8, their condemnation is just, he says. That's the bottom line. He says, whatever the debate may be, the bottom line is this, the condemnation of God upon the Jew is a just condemnation. 
And so the apostle, in writing to these uh, Roman Christians, has just addressed the whole world in these verses. A world that Romans were well familiar with, for there were pagans in that day as today, who were open and licentious in their immorality. And there were those who were rather self-righteous in their Gentile morality. And of course there were the Jews, who likewise were very righteous outwardly. And Paul says regarding them, all, they are condemned and without excuse before God. That brings us to verses 9 through 20, which is really his summation of all of this. The summation can be found in three words in verse 9. All under sin. That's it. That's the conclusion. Whether moral or immoral, Gentile or Jew, all are under sin. And now he begins to gather some data from the Old Testament to back up this conclusion. He quotes from Psalms 14, 53, 5, 10, 36, as well as Isaiah 53. And he piles phrase upon phrase and verse upon verse to illustrate the fact that all are under sin that all humanity is corrupt before God and worthy of His wrath. The humanity's sin against God is monstrous and it is premeditated. And that God's righteousness demands a just response. One commentator said, Evil can no more survive in the presence of God than a microbe can survive in the light of the sun. God's righteousness demands response, and that is summarized in the word wrath. Sometimes we think of wrath as being a temper tantrum. It's not that at all. God's wrath refers to a settled disposition of judgment and anger. It is not some flare-up like a volcano. It is a settled disposition that flows right out of the righteousness of God. And in His righteousness, God has no choice but to condemn the whole world because all have sinned. And He says that all the world is accountable to God. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Indeed, the law was never given, was it? For man's salvation. He says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. The law was not given for man's justification, but for his enlightenment, that man might understand his sinfulness Man cannot be made righteous by the law. J. Vernon McGee, in his own unusual way, said, to attempt salvation by the law is like jumping out of an airplane and instead of grabbing a parachute, grabbing a bag of cement. Well said. For those who grab onto the law, saying, by this I will be saved, are only dragging themselves to a greater condemnation. And so we come to the question, 
which is a key question in this book. If we are sinful and under the condemnation of God, and God who is righteous condemns us, how can we ever be made right with God? How can we ever escape the condemnation of God? For if we look at ourselves, we are in fact sinners. And God's wrath is upon us. It's not just that it's going to come someday. The picture that Paul paints here is that the wrath of God is like a constant stream of pressure against the ungodly. And it is sweeping them away to an eternity in hell. If that's where we are in our sin, how can we be rescued? How can this God who is righteous reach down and save anybody? For we're all under sin. Well, that's the blessed story that we come to in the next section of Romans as we continue our study in it. Let's pray together. Father, we give thanks to you for the Lord Jesus. Because we know, most of us know who are here tonight, that were it not for him, we would still be under your wrath, and justly so. And we would be without hope for eternity. Father, write upon our hearts, I pray, now that we've been redeemed, the predicament of those who are outside of Christ. May we understand the lostness of all men because all have sinned. When we understand that, give our hearts great compassion so that we might be motivated by the love of Christ to go to those who are lost still and share the news with them how they might be saved. I pray that you will write that upon our hearts individually and as a congregation, as a church. And may we increasingly understand that that is the focus of our reason for being here, our mission. That you've sent us here to be a witness of your saving gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. Lord, as we go out from here to our week of responsibility, go before us and give us courage to use the opportunities you would give to share this gospel, this good news of rescue. In Jesus' name, amen.